Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Hateful Eight. Got room for one more? They call him the hangman. When the handbill says dead or alive, the rest of us just shoot you in the back and up on top of perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. But when John Roof the hangman catches you, you hang. Here's Daisy Domergue. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman to hang. Is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Well, well, well. Looks like Minnie's haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days. Yes, it does. One of them fellas is not what he says he is. Move a little strange, you're gonna get a bullet. Not a warning, not a question. A bullet. Now we're talking. You were just listening to the trailer to the 2015 film The Hateful Eight, and the story is as follows. While racing toward the town of Red Rock in post-Civil War Wyoming, bounty hunter John the Hangman Ruth and his fugitive prisoner encounter another bounty hunter and a man who claims to be a sheriff. Hoping to find shelter from a blizzard, the group travels to a stagecoach stopover located on a mountain pass. Greeted there by four strangers, the eight travelers soon learn that they may not make it to their destination after all. The film is starring Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Walton Goggins, Damian Bashir, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Bruce Stern, James Parks, Channing Tatum. It is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And here to join me for this 2015 podcast retrospective review voted on by the MVP film community, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Danilo Castro. How's it going, everybody? It's going well. It's going very well. It's a Quentin Tarantino week here at MVP. We just got finished reviewing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know some of us are seeing it multiple times, listening to different interpretations, different takes. This time, we are looking back at The Hateful Eight, as I said before, voted on by the MVP film community as a podcast that they wanted to hear us talk about for this 2015 retrospective. And 
I was very, very happy that this actually won out in the polls because I have not seen this film since its release in 2015. In fact, to this day, it is the Quentin Tarantino film that I have seen the least amount of times. This was only my second viewing. Uh, wow. Yeah. And I know that like, for a couple of people out there, I know that Hateful Eight is not considered by many to be Quentin Tarantino's best film. And I have to say, like, my first experience watching this movie was not a pleasant one. I remember having to travel very far to see it because we had to see it in the 70 millimeter roadshow edition, which included the uh, overture, the intermission, and also was being, uh, you know, projected in, in actual film, not done digitally. Then it was like this whole big deal. It was like this special event, you know? And we did not have a good experience. Uh, the projector was off. I remember part of the image. Uh, the bottom was blurry. It was slightly off of the screen. There was one point in the movie where they had to stop it. And then they had to, like, kind of, you know, start it back up again. It was a mess all around. It was not a pleasant experience whatsoever for me. And kind of coupled along with the fact that I have to say, I, I don't know if it's so much the viewing experience that impacted me or if it was just misplaced expectations. I'm not exactly sure what it was. But after Inglorious Bastards, which to me is like up there with Pulp Fiction for peak Quentin Tarantino, and just the overall sheer audacity of Django Unchained, Hateful Eight was kind of a unique movie after that. You know, it took place in one location pretty much almost the entire time. Very condensed, very play-like, kind of long, almost three hours long. And it just seemed to be lacking something for me at the time. But I've seen it again, and I have some thoughts. Danilo Castro, let's hear your thoughts. What's been your experience like with The Hateful Eight? I was interested to see it because I like the idea of Quentin Tarantino doing a whodunit sort of his version of the whodunit. Uh, it, it wasn't something he had done before, and given that, you know, lots of his talents lie in d good dialogue, I, I expected I expected great things. I, I like the Western setting. I, I was excited going into it, but kind of like your first experience, when I came out of it, I was thinking, you know, it was good. The acting was good. The cast was strong. But it was lacking that certain ingredient that made me have a really strong opinion either way. I didn't hate it, but I didn't necessarily love it. Um, and so that's kind of where I was going, going into the second viewing. I do have some more thoughts going in, but I want to save those before we really get into it. Yeah, and I've been trying to pinpoint now for a while what was that thing, and it took me a little while to understand exactly what it was. I finally figured it out eventually, and it was before I had the second viewing, I eventually figured it out. And I always intended to go back and watch it again someday. Mm -hmm. Never got around to it. Even when they did the Netflix thing, where they released it in parts, which psh, I would never watch it like that. I, I still don't <laughs> think that that was a good idea. Uh, but I have seen it again since then. And I, I have to say, like my opinion has changed uh, for the better, actually. Josh Parham, no. You're someone that's always been very, very high on this movie, where others haven't been. You've been low also on uh, Quentin Tarantino movies that people have been high on. So... Tell me, once and for all, because you've been alluding to it for weeks, what is it about The Hateful Eight for you? Yeah, well, first, I would say that it's kind of interesting that your experience going into this film, Matt, is like, 
the exact opposite reaction that I had. Um, I was actually somebody not really high on movies like Inglorious Bastards and Django and was kind of a little down on Tarantino and kind of feeling like maybe this filmmaker I had a lot of respect for and admiration for was kind of losing the sheen a little bit, even though his movies were getting very good reviews and good notices. And going into The Hateful Eight, I was hopeful for something that would be really interesting to me. And knowing that he was using this, you know, extra wide format would be very enticing for me, especially. And I walked out the film just really kind of loving it and feeling like it was actually kind of a return to form for him. And what I really appreciate so much about this movie is that, yes, it is a difficult film to get into at times, but I think that this is a film that has a lot to say thematically and a lot to say, I think, about our relationships with each other. And I also think a commentary about our relationships to each other in uh, in America, even though this movie takes place in the past, I think it has a lot of relevant themes of today. And I think the performances are great. I agree that it could be a little bit tighter in the pacing, but overall, I still think that this is a very rich movie that, for me personally, actually delivered a little bit more from a storytelling perspective than Tarantino had actually done in the past. So. I still remain a huge fan of this film. I think it is really one of his best movies. Yeah, there's a lot of things uh, in this movie separately, right? If you take all the things as, as in pieces, they're, they're very unique. And each one of them has like a unique story kind of attributed to them. You have Robert Richardson's cinematography, which they made a very, very big deal about shooting this movie on these very, very old lenses that were only used to shoot like Ben-Hur or something like that. And they were very, very excited and they, you know, went out and they shot like this very widescreen format for all of these exteriors. And then they brought that into the interior. And I, like a bunch of people, was really, really, really loving the wide cinemascope view of everything and like loving the exterior shots and thinking, wow, this is absolutely gorgeous. And then when we get inside, I couldn't appreciate it as much. Maybe because, here's another thing too about my first viewing. I forgot to mention this part. I sat in the first row. Oh, yeah. And I would not have recommended Watching a widescreen movie like this in the first row, maybe not the best idea. <laughs> no. And, and let me tell you, Matt, when I first heard about his decision to use those extra wide lenses and then also hearing this movie was mostly going to be in one location. I had that reaction of, yeah, like why would you use such an expansive format for something that's mostly just going to be indoors? But I have to tell you that I actually think that's a really good decision for this film. And the reason is because it gives you so much more of the landscape that's even just within this one location. And I think what it does, it helps to sell the theatricality of this story. And when you're in this one location, you can suddenly see so much of what's going on in the background or what's going on more so on the periphery. And it gives you that sense of immersion that you're kind of looking at more of this location and you sort of feel like you're looking more at a stage. And I think for me, that really helps to sell the kind of interaction that these characters are going through. It helps to sell that theatricality. And it's another element that Tarantino hasn't really experimented with. And it's something I personally just find really interesting in the film. Yeah, absolutely. 
And then, like, another thing, too, that's very interesting about this movie, uh, and specifically only to this movie, is the use of Ennio Morricone's original score, which, in his previous films, he had used his uh, tracks before, um, noticeably in Kill Bill and a few others. And here, this was the first time that we got an actual Quentin Tarantino score in a movie. Like a full score. Yeah. And the other thing about the score, too, that was so... I think, you know, like I said, it's just something that draws upon Tarantino's love for cinema as a whole is that the score isn't really like a modern score. It has that very old school type of feel to it that actually makes the film feel somewhat classical at points. That aspect of the film is really strong because I felt going back to Django a little bit as another Western, I felt the anachronistic use of music in Django was a little distracting in moments. And this soundtrack is dead on the money in terms of setting the tone for the film. I mean, they might as well call this movie uh, Eight Hateful Men, you know, because it's pretty much Tarantino's 12 Angry Men. (laughs) When you really think about it, right? Yeah, it definitely has that theatrical kind of setting to it. It feels very much like a play. And I think a lot of times when you say that about a movie, it makes it seem like the film isn't very cinematic. But I think because Tarantino is such a great filmmaker and because he is using this extra wide format, it actually helps to bring a sense of cinematic um, appeal to the story, even though it is very theatrical. Right, because I feel like in a story like this, if you were going to try to highlight the claustrophobia of the setting of Minnie's haberdashery, which, by the way, I want... I just love saying that haberdashery. It's a fun <laughs> it's, word, definitely. It, like it could be called Minnie's Bar or Minnie's Inn. Haberdashery. <laughs> so great. <laughs> and I got to say too, that's another thing about this screenplay. There are some lines in this screenplay that I definitely could not remember from a first viewing. And maybe it's just because after seeing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, this, and the dialogue and that feeling kind of just very uncool. And maybe not as clever, but more naturalistic at times. It was very refreshing to rewatch The Hateful Eight and get these lines that, you know, I'm just trying to think like, you know, like when John Roof says something like, um, you know, that's the problem with old men. You can kick them down the stairs and say it's an accident, but you can't shoot them. Or, or when uh, Warren says, oh, you believe in Jesus now? Well, good, because you about to meet him. Like, there's like all these interesting little nuggets in here that remind us that Tarantino knows how to write cool dialogue. I hate saying that word cool, and I hate saying it the way that Tarantino would say it. Hey, man, my dialogue is cool. You know, my characters (laughs) say it, and it comes off very cool. Uh, But it is in this one. I mean, what's the the most famous line in the movie? Um, You don't mean to hang bastards, but mean bastards you need to hang, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so many in this. They're, They're just littered throughout. Uh, I, I could go on all day with this. I mean, there's just so, so many. And that was something that I did not appreciate on a first viewing, particularly because, like I said, the viewing experience wasn't the best. I think I went in with misplaced expectations. I kind of went in with my own biasness, too, of like like you said, Josh, knowing that these great uh, lenses that they were using to shoot this with, it was going to be mostly then indoors. And I'm not going to lie. I was one of the people that read the screenplay before seeing the movie because it leaked. Mm. So I was one of those people, Mm. too. (laughs) And I know that the screenplay wasn't the finished film and there were some changes. 
And I have to say, obviously, the experience of watching the movie, because then you have editing, you've got music, you got cinematography. There's all these elements that come together to create a movie that made the experience, obviously, better than simply just reading it on the page. But getting back to the play-like aspect of this, that was something that now, this time around, I was enjoying oh so much more because there is so much characterization that goes into each and every single one of his characters in this movie. Yeah, even the people that don't get a whole lot of explanation of like who they are up front, you still kind of get a sense of who they are based on how they interact with everybody. And it helps that they're played by actors that I really like. Like, I love Tim Roth. He's actually one of my favorite actors, and I love it whenever he shows up. And just him interacting with people with that particular kind of accent he's working with is just so delightful and oh yes oh Oh, yes my dear boy (laughs) he's so good and Uh, wait i gotta ask you a question about tim roth in this did you feel or is it like has it ever been confirmed that that role might have been written for christoph waltz it does feel like it and i don't know if that has been confirmed or not it does seem like something i had heard at one point but i've heard of that as well but yeah yeah. because it almost feels like tim roth watched bastards and django and was like I'm going to go for that. You know, like I'm going to I'm yeah. going to try and do Christoph Waltz cuz I've seen Tim Roth in similar a little bit. Yeah. And I mean Tim Roth has worked with Tarantino before in other films, so it is nice to see them reunited. Uh Ditto Michael Madsen. Oh yeah. Who It's so funny. You you watch him in Reservoir Dogs and you know Michael Madsen, you know he sounds like this. Now he sounds like this when he talks. <laughs> it's like the guy, the guy is like a totally different person altogether. But uh, I would say like out of everybody in this movie, like Michael Madsen, you know, I don't really like his character in this that much. Uh, Joe Gage, not really a big fan, although he does give me one of the funniest lines in the whole movie. You got to you got to hold it shut. You got to hammer it two times. All <laughs> the thing is busted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That and um, what's what's the other? There, there were there are three moments in this movie that made me laugh out loud hysterically watching this. That moment, um, Samuel L. Jackson's slow motion. You're gonna make a deal with this diabolical bitch, which is so ridiculous and so silly and so stupid. But it's but it's very memorable. And then uh, my favorite line, in, maybe in the whole movie, is uh, God bless him, uh, James Parks, uh, Ob's line: "That door is a whore." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! This movie is very very funny at times. Oh, absolutely. and yeah. then there's stuff that honestly, I, and I can understand now. We're gonna get into the thing that maybe isn't so funny. And that's the character of John Roof mm. and his uh, the way he treats Daisy Domergo in this, which has been a focus of attention amongst many people and is a heavy criticism that gets brought up a lot. Josh, you're a defender of the film. I know you've heard this. What do you have to say to those who, you know, take issue with the way uh, John the Hangman Roof is portrayed in this movie? Well, I think when it uh, specifically comes to the issue of violence against women in this film, there is some validity to it. And obviously this is something that has been present in almost every Tarantino movie, and it's still being talked about even to this day with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And 
I think that the issue is more complicated than people give credit. Um, I think that John Ruth is meant to be looked at as somebody that is charming a lot of times, but as the title of the movie suggests, is yes, yeah, is a person that has a lot of like hateful things about him. And and, and for the record, I want to clarify that was the thing. I couldn't figure out what it was about this movie that made me not mm. like it so much. And I discovered later that was it. Not a single character in this movie, even Samuel L. Jackson, who I think is maybe portrayed in the best light of all, nobody in this movie is what you would call a likable character. No. Yeah. no. Well, I have something more to say about that, but I want to put a pin in it because I want to finish the, the John yep. Ruth thing. Please. Um, yes, he's not supposed to be a wholly likable character. And neither is Daisy. Like, sh- these are two people that are pretty horrible people. And while I think that there is an innate thing within all of us that sees violence against women and we want to recoil from it, and I think that you are sort of supposed to do that in this film, but I think also at the end of the day, it is sort of holding up a mirror to ourselves and saying, here is a horrible woman chained to a not-so-great man either, they're both being pretty despicable to each other. She's the cause of his violent death at the end, or at least is a participant in it. And I think that at the end of the day, you're just kind of supposed to witness the violence and realize that it is a product of these people's environments and the way that they interact with each other. I don't think the movie is celebrating necessarily in the specific treatment of horrible violence to women. I don't think the movie is necessarily doing that. We have an innate reaction to it, and I understand it, but I don't think that's necessarily the thesis that the movie is working with, personally speaking. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but this is a preview of our full review of the 2015 film The Hateful Eight here on the Next Best Picture podcast. In order to get the full review, you will have to head on over to our Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get this full hour and a half long review, along with other exclusive podcast content. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Play, FM, Acast, Castbox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really, really appreciate your feedback and your support. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.